Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up, we recount some of our favourite stories from 2023 here on The Urbanist. From Asia's first ever chief heat officer to a communist-led city in the east of Austria. From a sit-down with the mayor of Dallas to a weekend with the mayor of Bratislava. All that and much, much more in the next 30 minutes right here on The Urbanist with me, Andrew Tuck. The year that was on The Urbanist saw us speak to a number of mayors about what made their city special, but none were more accommodating than Matos Valu, the mayor of Slovakia's capital, Bratislava. Mayor Valo hosted The Urbanist for a weekend in the city for episode 610 of the show. And in this clip, we speak about his philosophy. Before joining him for a special performance, let's have a listen. I became a servant of our citizens. And of course that I have my values. And of course I'm fed that we will push cars out of the street and leave the bus line there because it's more important for me 80 people in the bus so they can reach their bus stop in much quicker pace or whatever. But it's also very important to understand how we are touching people's life, you know. So what I understand, without compromising my values and what I want to achieve, doing things sometimes maybe slower and understanding how we're really touching and influencing people's lives. The process of reclaiming some of those companies for the city wasn't easy, but this investment in public enterprises seems to be paying off. Take the municipal waste management company, Olo, for example. Last year, City Hall decided to open Colo, part shop, part reuse centre. It takes residents' unwanted goods, cleans them up and sells them for cheap to the next person. On the opening weekend, over seven tonnes of goods were collected and nearly 800 people visited the shop. It's good for the economy, the environment, the city, and it seems to be working. My name is Ila, Ila van Oyen. I'm a photographer, and I work for my NGO that I run together with my friend. It's called Punkt, and I am like a creative director of our activities. Colo is basically like a flagship store for the cooperation of municipality with the trash company, and it has two major functions. One is to collect and redistribute or reused stuff that people don't want anymore. And the other one is to educate that this is a good thing, that it is possible, and also how to support the circular system within the city. Now, we've walked around, there's everything from car seats for children, furniture, records, books, toys, mostly a very, very affordable price. So the ambition here isn't to make a fortune out of these things. It is to keep things out of going into the rubbish. Exactly. It's prevention of production of waste. What we do is when the used goods come in, we weigh them and we write down in what kind of category things are brought in, if it's a book or if it's a children's toy. The numbers that are important for the waste company, but also for the city, is, is how much waste have we prevented over, you know, over the course of a year, over two years, three years, five years. On our last day, we head out of the Slovak capital to the town of Trenčín, close to the Czech border. If over the last few days we've been chronicling Bratislava's urban transformation, today it's all about seeing another side of its leading man. We're here to watch Mayor Valo become bass player Valo in a sold-out end-of-tour concert for his band, Para. Well, it's a... 
a pretty strange end to a couple of days with a mayor, an elected official, here to talk about what he's doing for his city and for Bratislava. But there's something quite amazing about seeing this six-piece band in front of an audience of 700 in the town of Trenchine. We've driven about an hour and 20 minutes outside of Bratislava. And the crowd are going mad. They know every lyric. They're all in harmony. They're all in tune with what's going on on stage. And it makes me wonder, is this, is this what the mayor thinks when he looks at his city, when he thinks about an electorate, when he thinks about a fractured electorate opera? How, how do you get people to be in harmony? How do you get everybody to come along for a journey? Because he must look at this audience all jumping, clapping, singing along together and think, do you know what, it must be possible to get this magic actually in City Hall too. We also got the chance this year to speak with the mayor of Dallas, Eric Johnson, on episode 625 of The Urbanist. Mayor Johnson told us about his unique perspective when approaching the defund the police movement and what it is about being a mayor that he really loves. The years between 1990 and 1994, when I was a high school student in Dallas growing up, were the most violent years on record in the United States of America in terms of homicides. We hit over 500 homicides one of those years in Dallas when our population wasn't anywhere near what it is today. So think about that. I grew up during that time when we literally feared for our lives when we walked out of the front door of our homes. And so I had that in my mind when I started to see violent crime ticking up during my mayoralty. I said, I just never want to go back to those days where kids have to be afraid and the gunshots to keep kids up at night and they're afraid to play outside. And so when the defund the police conversation started, what I was able to do that I think a lot of mayors would not have been able to do had they not had my background is I had the confidence from growing up in the types of communities that were being affected most by the violent crime to say that the defund the police movement is being led by and driven by uh, mostly affluent, liberal-minded folks who do not live in the communities that are affected by the violence. And that this is not something that is being asked for or pushed by the actual people of color primarily who are living in these communities that are being ravaged by violence. I had that information in my brain anecdotally from growing up and from having connectivity to the community that was not something that I had to go and poll or wait for a white paper to be written about. I just knew immediately that this movement to defund the police was wrongheaded. And I said it publicly. We won't do it here and I won't support it. And it got me protests outside my home for days on end. And it was a terrible time for my family. My children and my wife were all very frightened, which is what the protesters wanted. They actually said that they wanted me and my family to experience the fear that people of color experience at the hands of the police. I held my ground, though, because I really believed that this was a bad idea for Dallas and that it was going to cause particularly communities of color to be less safe. Here we are two years later, and I think we've been proven right. We're the only city in the top 10 in the United States that had every form of violent crime that's tracked by the FBI decline year over year for the past two years. And we're in the middle of a third year of overall violent crime decreases. And I attribute that to the fact that we never went down that defund path 
and the morale of our police department stayed high. Our community remained supportive of the police department. And uh, we've just had a lot of success when it comes to public safety as a result. A simple question, but you know, you've stood for re-election and won. I can hear in your voice that there's passion about what you do. But what do you get from being a mayor? What makes it exciting for you? What's the appeal to you about being mayor of Dallas? I honestly didn't know what I was getting into when I ran for mayor the first time in terms of how rewarding this job is. I knew how important the work was, which is why I ran. I felt like Dallas was at an inflection point and really needed a certain type of leader. I couldn't have foreseen, though, just how needed I was in terms of the public safety issues that we talked about and my unique background to be able to stand up against the defund the police movement because of my upbringing, where I could speak to that so personally. I couldn't have foreseen that. But I have learned since I've become mayor just how much people superimpose their hopes and dreams for the city that they call home onto that one human being. This year also saw a few of our correspondents take the reins as guest producers of The Urbanist. And our man in Vienna, Alexei Korolyov, he did our call for episode 592 to report on an Austrian city with a somewhat unique leadership. Graz is picture postcard Austria. It's got beautiful Baroque houses that are protected by UNESCO, winding cobbled streets that run down to the River Moor, and up on a hill, a storybook clock tower. This is hardly a natural breeding ground for communism. Yet it was here, 40 years ago, that an idealistic young student called Elke Kahn decided to become a communist. I don't know exactly when the first contact was, 1980, I think. What did your parents say when you became a member? Do you do enjoy? Uh, <laughs> because my father... <laughs> it's no problem. Das ist ja das, was das Schöne war an meinen Eltern. Elke Kahr was lucky to have such understanding parents. In 1983, when she joined the Austrian Communist Party, or KPÖ, the Cold War was still going strong. Ronald Reagan had just called the Soviet Union an evil empire. Yes, let us pray for the salvation of all of those who live in that totalitarian darkness. Let us be aware that while they preach the supremacy of the state, declare its omnipotence over individual man and predict its eventual domination of all peoples on the earth. They are the focus of evil in the modern world. Austria was officially neutral in the Cold War, but it was crawling with Soviet spies and infiltrators. And that made the KPR suspect as well. It was not easy in this time. Ernest Kaltenegger, my comrade, the Make Our Party growing up, said that when we have uh, information point in the streets, the people said not good things to us, and some, they, they like us, and they haben sich nicht getraut, mm. mit uns zu reden in der Öffentlichkeit, wow. aus Angst, sie könnten ihre Arbeit verlieren, gesehen wow. werden, das war auch stark, also wow. damals, das wäre nicht so einfach gewesen. In the 80s, people thought yes. that they would lose their job if they spoke to communists. Yes. <laughs> As if to confirm these fears, in 1989 Elke Kahr went on a study trip to Moscow. I was born in Moscow the year before and in an incredible coincidence, it turns out that she lived just a couple of streets away from where I grew up. It's, it's the uh, metro station Aeroport. Yeah. That's where I live. 
Really? I live in Planetna, ja. Ah, Ulitza. das kann ich mich noch erinnern, weil die Namen ja so super sind. <lacht> The Red Menace is now gone, but communism, and by extension the KPR, still carries the stigma. Graz is special because of this, because we know Elkikar and the Communist Party since years, and um, they were here always for people. But when I told uh, to my family that I was the Communist Party, they, they were asking me if I'm insane. Maida Krivograd is vice president of a Graz cultural association called Girls. <laughs> they couldn't understand because of the name, yes. And also, I have also friends in Slovenia, and they were also saying, but you are crazy. I mean, how you can vote somebody who has the name Communistic Party? And in Yugoslavia, ex-Yugoslavia, people who live there, I mean, for them, this is really a bit shocking, you know. The thing is that it was standing always for Stalin, you know, and it's still standing for Stalin, but Stalin was a dictator, actually, you know. Mm -hmm. there, there was nothing in common with communism. Mm. It was only the name that he used. And that's why this connotation of the word communism is so still so bad, you know. I think really this is really special Graz. Jessica Bridger was in charge for episode 619 of The Urbanist when she reported on the 100th edition of Badenfahrt, the largest urban folk festival in Switzerland that sees an entire city within a city constructed every single year. Imagine waking up one morning, leaving the house, and realizing that there is an entirely new city being built all around you. We've likely all had that dream where you discover an extra secret room in your house. But imagine that in a city. Imagine discovering a new city underway in your city. That describes what I discovered in Baden, Switzerland in late August 2023, preparing for something called Badenfart a 10-day urban festival like no other. Days before the start of Badenfart, there were structures underway throughout the city, from the center outward and down to the Limmat River. Baden goes wild, building amazing things. Three-story bars, stages, rocket ship-shaped stages, platforms, treetop bars, hillside stairs. There are restaurants, huge concerts, small performances, light shows, parades, carnival rides, and more DJ sets than even seems reasonable. To say it means a lot to Baden is putting it lightly. Baden-based restaurateur Joel Ibernini explained. It's everything. I think Badenfart to people from Baden and around Baden is the most important festival that they have in Switzerland. It's uh, bigger than uh, Zürichfest. It's more meaningful than 1st of August. It's more meaningful than Christmas to most of people in Baden. So, yeah, I think it's everything. There are many urban fairs, carnivals and happenings. There are huge events like Burning Man in the Nevada Desert, along with festivals, Biennale and Triennale of Architecture and Art, around the globe, even world expos. All of these temporary events abound now, after a fevered decade-plus of expansion. But it turns out, the most wonderful festival of architecture, with the celebration and creation of public space at its center, has been happening in Baden for a hundred years. Local architect Franco Panazza was a member of the Badenfart Organizing Committee for over two decades. Baden will be transformed into a kind of fairy tale world during the Badenfart. You can see all this wondrous building, these magical moments 
atmospheres, amazing and smiling faces, pure happiness for 10 days. When you move somewhere new, people are excited to tell you about their local treasures, and Badenfart was often mentioned and was even the topic of an exhibition. But nothing really did it justice. It is hard to describe any urban-scale event casually, and even more so when a hundred new pavilion buildings are built in about a week for a 10-day festival, which only happens every five years. To mark the hundred-year anniversary of the event, this year it is themed Neobadenfart, to make what is old new again. So, like good urbanists, let's go and find out more. First, we return to Joel Ibernini, a Bodner born and raised, sitting in the rooftop garden of his wine bar Armando's, for more of an overview. There is stuff everywhere. So you can find at every corner, you can find those really amazing stands. So you get people that do simple things, but beautiful things. You get people that go more into artsy. Then there's also more the architecture style. There is more uh, rural style. Uh, so you get all different kinds of construction and you can find it all over the city. I was curious if this was just city PR meant to attract outsiders. For Baden as a city, I think, well, funny thing is Baden does it just for itself. <laughs> Actually, they're not doing it for people outside. I mean, they are. They are welcoming. The tradition, the history is that Zurich people come to Baden. But it's not about that. I think people really just want to celebrate life. And Baden is a very lively city full of people from everywhere from this world. It's very international for such a small city in Switzerland. And I think that's why people just like to live a little. The climate remained an important topic throughout the year. And in episode 616 of The Urbanist, we were lucky enough to speak with Bushra Afrin, the Asian continent's first chief heat officer, a role that is starting to become more common throughout the world. Bushra explains why heat affects women differently and what work she is doing to tackle extreme heat in her city of Dhaka. Heat or any other climate disaster, it affects women the most. So, for example, if a disaster happens, women are the last people to get out of there. I mean, contrary to the popular belief of, like, get the women and children out first. But in Bangladesh, women stay and get the livestock out or get their children out or get the household items out. And, you know, they're just more vulnerable in terms of the domestic violence issue. Like, for example, with so much of the country being threatened by climate change, uh, in the coastal regions, so much of the land is disappearing under seawater. They're losing their land, and all of that is causing livelihood insecurity. And what's happening is we're seeing a rise in child marriages again. So all of these young girls are being married off, and they're very likely coming to Taka as climate migrants, as new wives, and they don't have their families with them. They don't have their education with them. They don't have any agency. And since they're young, they are most likely, again, victims of domestic violence or there's childbirth issues as well, because they do get pregnant early as well. The city's healthcare and the infrastructure isn't adequate to support them. So women are like, it's an established fact that women are the most affected when it comes to the adverse effects of climate change. And that's no different than when we consider heat and extreme heat. You mentioned there, of course, how heat can contribute to this public health crisis that the city is facing. You also described all these more um, informal settlements and rural areas within the city that 
put part of the population in a more vulnerable position and certain neighborhoods certainly more vulnerable to the consequences of extreme heat. Perhaps just finally then, looking into the future, looking at the work ahead of you, what would you like your legacy to be as DACA's chief heat officer? What are some of the issues that it would mean a job well done for yourself to have been able to tackle in a short amount of time? The most important thing to me is honestly to work with my community and listen to them and listen to the most vulnerable people. Heat in Taka does not affect everybody equally. The effects of heat are dispersed very, very unequally in an almost unjust way to, especially it affects these women who are living in the informal sectors the most. Like, for example, a lot of them are going out of the informal settlements and walking all the way to the wherever they're working. And usually they're cleaners or they're cooks or their domestic servants and household helpers. And they're doing manual labor or labor that puts them directly in line with heat. And usually, in most cases, they don't have access to air conditioning in the places or the rooms that they're working in. So it's hot where they're working and that they're coming back at night and then they're cooking again for their families in those informal settlements in the heat. So we're in the process actually of launching a green wave, an urban greening project. So in that, I've made it my mission to make sure that the trees that will be planted, they should be planted in the areas that need the trees the most. And I want to make sure that they're planted there the soonest. So for example, trees that have canopy, trees that are providing shade, they are providing a cool canopy. And a lot of the times when we're thinking about tree planting, when the city previously thinks about tree planting, informal settlements usually go as an afterthought or they're excluded from this conversation. So my job is to make sure that those trees are being planted there. Climate was also high on the agenda at the World Economic Forum's Urban Transformation Summit. And in episode 627 of the show, Carlotta Rabello reported from the summit on some of the key conversations. In this clip, we hear Carlotta speak with an organisation on a mission to re-green our cities. As the three days of discussion came to a close, one issue seemed to have permeated all talks. How investing in nature can be the way forward for the cities of tomorrow. And one company working to bring greenery back into urban areas is Sugi, an organization that plants dense pocket forests in cities across the globe. Here's Sugi's founder, Elise van Middelem. Think of them as biomes, right? We're not planting trees, we are creating micro-ecosystems. And so, personally, to me, it was really important to bring back the wild. You see, having been able to live in San Francisco and going into that ancient forest, which is the redwoods. By the way, Sugi is the sister of the redwoods. It's a Japanese tree, my favorite tree. (laughs) And the idea was really like, how can we create for people that sensation, that ancestral feeling of the wild? You see, when you take a space, it's 100 square meters, 200 square meters, you plant 300 or 600 trees, immediately you get that sense of a buzzing life, the web of life. You get the soil restores. You bring back a lot of pollinators. You bring back the butterflies and all the life that comes with it, but also birds. You know, all of a sudden, birds in that density have a safe space to nest. And then the fun part is, is that you can plant right where people live and work so they can get that sense of belonging and have an ownership over that pocket forest. 
Speaking of ownership, a lot of the projects that you deploy tend to be in schools as well. What are some of the particular challenges when you are introducing these projects in schools? And I guess I'm just curious, how do kids react? I can imagine that for some of them, this is quite a novel, exciting experience. Mm. Yeah, it is absolutely. So we actually call them the outdoor classrooms. So until this day, we have about 170 pocket forests planted. We'll be at 200 at the end of the year and 90 of them or schools. So we, until this day, we've got 40,000 children that were impacted with the creation of these forests. And many of them have never touched the soil. They've been told at home it's dirty. And so they arrive at the site and the first moment is always like amazement, right? Like where do they start and how do they do this? But the beauty about these forests is, and think of it that way, nature is random. It's not organized. It's organized chaos. And children, in the end, are the best planters. They arrive, we lay out the trees, and you imagine it's shrub, subtree, tree, canopy. So we plant in layers. There's 20 minimum different native species. And then we just say to them, pick a tree and plant. And they run for it. But I think that's the beauty of it. They get astounded by, you know, can we really dig in the soil? We give them worms and we let them throw worms on the soil because they, they aerate the soil. And then it's the mulching part, right? Like, so a forest, we always like, we work the soil, we plant, and then we heavily mulch them to create an ecosystem. So there's this whole idea of reconnecting. And, and for them, actually, they become the stewards of the forest. For our final highlight... This year saw the 50th anniversary of hip-hop culture. And in episode 629, urban sound specialist Shane Shapiro joined us in studio to describe how the music genre has also served as a vehicle for economic growth and community development. There's a lot of successful rappers who are kind of one-man or woman economic development agencies. So Killer Mike is one example. If you're a leader and you really mean something to your people, ain't you supposed to be in the community with your people? Ain't you supposed to be there? Like the only people I see in the communities are rappers and ballplayers. He's part of the duo Run the Jewels. He also records on his own. But he has invested in black and brown and, and minority businesses in Atlanta, where he's from. Started with investing in a barbershop franchise, and he created a, kind of an entrepreneurial co-working hub which led to a digital bank specifically for black, brown, and and Latino entrepreneurs in Atlanta. And his investments are local economic development. It's the same thing that economic development organizations, chambers of commerce, and these types of business organizations whose job is to invest in, you know, the root and branch of our economies. And his money was earned from hip-hop. And there are many, many examples of that. He is, you know, one of many. Now, the U.S. is very different to... Europe in many ways. And one of the ways in the US, often a philanthropist can step in, do lots of projects that don't even need to work with, with City Hall, that they do their thing. You know, we see an artist like Theaster Gates in Chicago, just independently minded, good at delivering projects. For these same people, are they working with the system or are they kind of outside the system just doing their own thing, do you think? It's a bit of both. So, you know, Chance the Rapper is working with the system in Chicago. That's another American example. I wrote an article about how we need to reimagine hip-hop as local economic development. And let's break it down to what is local economic development? What literally is it? And it's a series of policies and investments and strategies and, and things that organizations do to either give money, time, space, or encouragement to people to create businesses. And often these systems are in place, ignore a lot of the 
cultural capital that can then be used to create more cultural capital in communities. And the world's most popular genre is hip hop, the genre that is in literally, and I say the word literally, literally, every community in the world is hip hop. And it's also the, you know, it has a kind of low barrier to entry because you don't need a huge amount of training and skill to just start at the very, very, very low level. It's like being in a choir. And so I believe if we harness that value and we translate it and we say, okay, well, how can the mechanisms and the structure of hip hop, which have manifested into global superstars have manifested into changing popular culture in and of itself, how can we use that as a tool to invest in our communities? Because we're not really. And that's not frustration. That's me coming, saying this is an incredible opportunity that we have in all our communities. When you're at heaven's gates, we telling the Lord? You wouldn't even let a kid into some steadier shores. That's a life they may never afford. Surely you would want to give your people chances that were better than yours. No? Well, that's all for this week's edition of The Urbanist. The Urbanist is produced by Carlotta Rabello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Stevie Wonder with Living for the City. And let me also take this chance to wish everyone a great 2024. Thank you for listening, city lovers. Yeah.